0: Romans chapter 1 And then I'm going to read uh, article 18 of the Belgic Confession if you'd like to follow along as I read that'll be on page 77 the back of our hymnal Really going to just be considering verse three of Romans 1 and then go into various other places um, in Scripture as we think about this doctrine tonight. but I'll read verses one through three of Romans chapter one just so we don't hop in mid-sentence. Romans 1 verses one through three, God's Word given to us for our good, let us attend to its reading. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word endures forever. Article 18 of the Belgic Confession, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We confess, therefore, that God has fulfilled the promise which he made to the fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets when he sent into the world, at the time appointed by him, his own only begotten and eternal Son, who took upon him the form of a servant and became like unto a man, really assuming the true human nature with all its infirmities, sin excepted, being conceived in the womb of the blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, ...without the means of man, and did not only assume human nature as to the body, but also a true human soul, that he might be a real man. For since the soul was lost, as well as the body, it was necessary that he should take both upon him, to save both. Therefore, we confess, in opposition to the heresy of the Anabaptists, who deny that Christ assumed human flesh of his mother, that Christ... Partook of the flesh and blood of the children, that he is a fruit of the loins of David after the flesh, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, a fruit of the womb of Mary, born of a woman, a branch of David, a shoot of the root of Jesse, sprung from the tribe of Judah, descended from the Jews according to the flesh of the seed of Abraham, since he took on him the seed of Abraham and was made like unto his brethren in all things, sin excepted. So that in truth he is our Emmanuel, that is to say, God with us. Consider these things together. It's a good lesson in studying the scriptures and, and also for life that sometimes the smallest words can make the biggest difference when you're communicating something, when you're trying to convey the truth. And I was thinking about this, the impact of little words. I remember a couple decades ago, one of our former presidents who had said, it all depends on what the meaning of is is. Right? If you can change the meaning of the word is, you can make anything mean anything. But more specifically, the little words that we call prepositions are Important, so important because they establish the relationship between things. In or out, to or from. These little words can completely turn around the meaning of sentences. I, uh, just kind of an example, I met someone a couple of months ago who was from the south side, kind of grown up on the south side and uh, had... His life had sort of gone through a number of different stages and he had become somewhat successful and ended up living in Europe for a time. And as he was reflecting on the time of his childhood, he realized he came from probably the roughest neighborhood on the south side of the city. And he realized that he did not wear that as a badge of honor, but he had tried to minimize that part of his past. In other words, he would have said that he came out of the city, but he would not have said that he was of the city. You know how that denotes a little bit of a closer relationship, to say you are of somewhere, rather than you came out of somewhere. And when it comes to doctrine, it's often little words like this, when we're talking about things like the incarnation of Christ, or the nature of God, these little words can make uh, the biggest difference in the things that we confess. Is Jesus from God or is he of God everything and everyone in some way is from God but Jesus is the only man who is of God in the sense that he shares his nature and his being God of God light of light not God from God not light from light but God of God light of light that speaks of his deity what of his humanity King of kings, yet born of Mary, as the words we've just sung. This may seem like something normal for us or second nature for us, but this actually is something that, that over which battles have been fought, whether or not we can say that Jesus is born of Mary. And that brings us to this confession, or this article in our uh, confession tonight. You notice that uh, this article takes direct aim at a certain group, a group called the Anabaptists. Anna meaning again, which means as a group they rejected the covenant baptism of children and said that adults had to be baptized again. So that's where you get the name Anabaptists. Interesting that our confession mentions the Anabaptists three times. It mentions the Roman Catholics zero times. It gives us a little bit of a a sense of what the author of the confession, uh, Guido de Bray, was actually trying to do, showing that the Reformed churches were more within the the historic stream of Christianity. He wrote this confession to end persecution uh, so that Reformed people could stop being persecuted, wanted to show them as uh, Trinitarian and Orthodox Christians. But in uh, this article specifically, it takes direct aim at one of the teachings of the Anabaptists, and they denied this teaching about the incarnation of Christ. They would not say that Jesus was born of Mary. They would say that he was born out of Mary. So take, for instance, uh, one of the things that an Anabaptist said in uh, this time. He said, even as the dewdrop falls into the oyster shell and therein is changed into the pearl... So the eternal word came into Mary's womb through the Holy Spirit and became flesh and blood without partaking of the flesh and blood of Mary's body. The body of Christ, therefore, had its origin in heaven and not on earth. So to return to this idea of prepositions again, they would say Jesus was born out of Mary. They would not say that he was born of Mary, that is, of her flesh and Blood. interesting that uh, you go back and you can read some of the, the, the scientific ideas of that day and this teaching of the Anabaptists in order to support it they actually piggybacked on uh, the, the primary way of thinking about the development of a child within the womb of a mother during that time and they said at that time most people thought that uh, the female seed, the mother seed was passive in procreation, and the father's seed was active. This actually went all the way back to Aristotle. And of course, we know that something very different is going on. We, we know now through science and what we've discovered about the development of a human child within a mother. That's something different. In fact, at the moment of conception, it's unbelievable to think about, really, at the moment of conception, there are actually the DNA of three human people inside of the mother. The father and the mother and then this new life that has come about. So to a postmodern mind, it may seem like as you start to dive into this kind of doctrine that you're splitting hairs, but truly it's not. These little nuances, these subtle little differences of what you might say about Christ, about God, can end up making all the difference. Confessing Jesus as born of Mary... And being the seed of Abraham of the loins of David has huge implications for what we believe and how we live and how we hope. So what we believe, how we live, and how we hope. Here's our main idea tonight. Scripture teaches us that Christ partook of the flesh and blood of Mary in order to show us the kind of Savior that he is. He redeems our, hu- our sinful human nature to bring us to God. And then to show us how we are to hope and how we are to Live. So, let's consider these things, the real humanity of Jesus Christ. Romans 1, verse 3. The gospel regarding the Son of God who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David. That's the way the NIV uh, puts it for us. That's a little bit interpretive. It doesn't say anything about human nature in the Greek in Romans 1.3. So the ESV is a little bit of a better translation. It says this, the gospel concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now how do we understand that phrase, descended from David according to the flesh? The word for descendant is the word for seed. When you plant a seed in the ground, it's broken down and something new springs forth. It's not the seed itself, but it is of the seed. And the same can be said of people. Offspring are not their parents, but they are of their parents. They they share something biological. And so what Paul is pointing out here is that Jesus Christ, descended from David, is saying that Jesus is in a true way the human ancestor of King David. He is, at the very least, of the house of David. And so we don't have enough time tonight to delve into the genealogies of Jesus, but just a couple of quick comments. Uh, uh, one thing that we, we need to, to know and understand about uh, the birth of Christ, you know, we, we look at Matthew, you look at Luke, those are the, the places where the two genealogies of, of Jesus spring forth. And uh, they're a little bit different. And we looked at the genealogy of Luke um, at the beginning of our time in Luke. There's a couple of possibilities for what's going on with those genealogies. Some people say that the Gospel of Luke is actually the genealogy of Mary. That's the the mother of Jesus. Her genealogy, Matthew, is Joseph's genealogy. That could be. uh, Some people think that that's actually not what was going on. Um, There there are a bunch of different uh, theories about why those two genealogies of Jesus are different. But here's what we can know. We know that both Mary and Joseph were of the tribe of Judah. And we know that Joseph the father of Jesus, or the supposed human father of Jesus, the earthly father of Jesus, is certainly of the kingly and royal line of David. As to whether or not Mary is, we really don't have absolute knowledge as to whether or not she is of the biological line of David. But of course, In that culture and in that time, because of marriage, you would be welcomed into the household of your husband's uh, genealogy, his family. And so at the very least, Jesus is born of the household of David. And then it's very possible that, uh, for instance, the Gospel of Luke gives us Mary's genealogy. And then even beyond that, it's very possible that since Joseph was a good Jewish man, and he could only marry within his own tribe, that certainly Mary herself could very well be of the biological line of David as well. But what we are saying when we say that Jesus is born a descendant of David is that he certainly is of the house of David, and as a human descendant of his mother... Of Mary, he very likely is too, of the flesh and blood, the direct biological line of David as well. But either one is completely legitimate. It's what we have to understand. To be welcomed into a family, when you married someone, you were welcomed into their family and then considered part of, uh, for instance, in this case, the line of David. So, when we think about this as Jesus as a true human being, three things that we consider. The promise of the Savior as a human being, the purpose of the Savior being a man, and the proof of his being a man. So the promise of Jesus being a man, the purpose of his being a man, and the proof of his being a man. You go back and you look at all of the prophetic promises about the Savior that would come. And all of those promises are that this Savior who would come would be a human being. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first preaching of the gospel. We read, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Even from the very beginning, this was to be the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. It was understood that this one who would come and reverse what had happened in the Garden of Eden would be a human being. The promise is made to Abraham. God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you or in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. It was To be a real descendant of Abraham. And of course Jesus is that. The promises made to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We know that there are two fulfillments of this prophecy. The first is uh, Solomon, Solomon the son of David, the immediate fulfillment. But then the further fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of that is Christ, who comes from the line of David. There are also passages that speak looking back upon Christ, and of course talk about him as a true man. John 1:14 The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Galatians 4:4 4, 4, When the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law. So all the promises and everything that looks back upon Jesus Christ speaks to him from the word of God as being truly a human being. What's the purpose? of Jesus being a man. The the purpose of Jesus becoming a man was to redeem men who had fallen into sin. It was to redeem human beings. As we read in Article 18 of the Confession, he had to take upon himself a true human nature and a true human soul. Because not only had our nature fallen, our souls were corrupted as well. So he took both of those upon himself so that he might redeem us. Well-known questions and answers from our catechism 14, 15, and 16, of course, it says this, Can any mere creature pay for us? No, in the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. So what kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? The answer, one who is a true and a righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who has at the same time God. Why must he be a true and a righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. And so people like Anabaptists or earlier heretics like Marcion or Manichaeus, they said that Jesus merely appeared to be a man. Some people said he was a phantom. Some people said he was some kind of a heavenly being. But if Jesus were merely a heavenly being, or some kind of a phantom appeared only to be a human being, it would not be human beings that he could help. So Hebrews chapter 2 picks up on this. And it says this, For surely it is not angels that he helps. He helps the offspring of Abraham. Abraham. The point of that verse is to say that if Jesus were an angel, as a redeemer, he would be helping angels. But that's not who he's helping. He's helping the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he is the offspring of Abraham also. That was his purpose for becoming man. The proof of Jesus being a real human being his suffering and death. You read the scriptures Jesus suffered and he died. He really died. Jesus grew. He had the experience of growing like a human being. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Jesus hungered, right? He hungered. He had to eat and drink like a normal human being. He was in the desert uh, when he was tempted by the devil and he had uh, not eaten for 40 days. He thirsted. He said, I thirst on the cross. He was made subject to fatigue and cold. All the miseries of this fallen condition; yet he remained without sin. And that very famous verse—we actually considered it last week together as we were over at Bethel. Hebrews four fifteen: We do not have a high priest who is able, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Experienced all the miseries of being a human being. Finally, he died. He died. Jesus died. There have been various people who have said throughout history that Jesus did not die. It's actually what the Muslim faith believes, that Jesus never actually died. Scripture tells us, uh, without qualification, in absolute terms, that Jesus died. It's Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. First Peter 3, 18 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So there you have the promises of the Savior being a human being. You have the purpose and uh, you have the proof. The promises, the purpose, and the proof. There are some places that you come across in the New Testament that seem to state things in a way that you say, what is the New Testament author getting at here? For instance, you'll see sometimes they'll say that Jesus had the likeness of a man or he took on the form of a human being. And what you have to understand is each time the New Testament authors say that, there's a specific reason why. So a couple of examples, Philippians 2, 7 and 8 says this, Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if someone wants to say that Jesus was not actually a human being, they'll latch on to a verse like this, and they'll say he had the form of a man, he had the likeness of a man. But what Paul is doing there is he's, he's showing us, he's teaching us that when Jesus came in the incarnation, there was a sense in which uh, a lot of the, the, the qualities of his deity were veiled. They were veiled and they were, they were in a sense put aside so that Jesus could appear as a man. You wouldn't have seen Jesus and said, that's a God man. You would have said, that is a man. And that's the point that Paul is making. He humbled himself and he took the form of a servant, and he veiled his deity in the incarnation. He's not speaking of the nature of Christ there, but his conduct. And another example, just quickly, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. This is what some people will say, well, there, there you have it. Adam was made from the earth. Jesus comes from heaven. So he's some sort of Phantom heavenly being not actually a true human. But what Paul is doing there in First Corinthians 15 is he's talking about the life-giving energy that came to Christ in the resurrection. You remember in Genesis, God breathed life into Adam. He breathed life into him from the dust. And in the resurrection, he breathes life into Jesus uh, through the power of the Spirit. So, with all of that, what do we say? We say that Jesus was born. Of Mary. When we say as Christians what Christians have historically professed, we say that Mary was miraculously endowed with a child in her womb, but that child partook of her flesh and blood. God miraculously gave her body a child that as to the fatherhood was supernatural, but as to the mother, it was natural. What's at stake in this? Are we splitting hairs? Are we fussing too much over particulars? No, everything is at stake. Salvation is at stake, and our approach to the Christian life is as well. Listen to how the New Testament writers talk about how important it is to uphold the true humanity of Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 4, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world. Second John 1, seven. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and The Antichrist. Christ in being a human person for us, being a human person and a redeemer, what does he do? He brings us to God. Remember that verse in Hebrews chapter 2 where it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to call us brothers because of what he is able to do as the one who sanctifies us as the one who cleanses us. He comes down into our experience, takes on human nature, true human nature, true human soul, and he is able to sanctify us and present us before the Father. It's for that reason that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. If he were not actually a true redeemer, then God would not be able to call, Christ would not be able to call us brothers. But as it is, he is not ashamed to associate with us, to be our mediator, to be our high priest, to be our savior, and to be, even as he says in the Gospel of John, to be our friend. Also, significantly for our own life and the way that we think about serving God in the time that he gives to us on this earth, there are huge implications for what you think about the true humanity of Jesus Christ. The Anabaptists believed that the created material realm was something to flee from. So Anabaptists are the the ancestors of modern-day Amish and Mennonites, suspicious of material things, suspicious of uh, natural things, suspicious of the things of this world. And uh, you see how they have this, they're sort of led on to that by the way that they think about Christ. Because they said, well, Christ could not have been a true human being because humanity has this sort of, this dirtiness to it, there's something that's unacceptable about it. And so that, that flows into the way that they think about this world and the way that they think about this life. So they flee from society, it's something to swear off, it's something to avoid. We're going to think more carefully about that next week when we think about Jesus' words, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. But really important for us to think about tonight that this has important implications for how we hope and how we think about our own bodies. Uh, what do we hope for our own bodies? What do we learn through the humanity of Jesus Christ? Well, we learn that bodies matter to God. Our bodies matter to God. We think of a place like Romans 8 where you think of the, the, all of the creation is groaning and we ourselves are groaning, waiting for What? The redemption of our bodies. There will come a time when uh, God will raise up our bodies. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, bodies are laid to rest in the ground and that is like a seed. They're, they will share in some mysterious way with that previous body. A body that will be fitted for eternity. That will never perish. That will never fade away. We can think that way about our bodies because of Christ's willingness to become a human being, to have a true human body, to have a true human soul. So that shapes the way that we hope that God will give us a real, material, physical body. It will be different than the one that we have now, but in some way it will share like a seed and a plant. It shapes the way that we hope. It also shapes the way, though, that we live. And that's something that's important to realize as well. The way that we think about Christ and his human nature, who he is as a savior, has implications for how we think about the way that we live out our sanctified life now. And that we glorify God with our bodies That's what the New Testament calls us to do, to think about it this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body can be used to glorify God. If your thinking is, is shaped more like what the Anabaptists would think, you'd think that your body is incapable of glorifying God. To someone who looks to Christ and who trusts in Him, uh, who has been fitted and sanctified, begun on that sanctification process, you're able to glorify God with your body. 1 Corinthians 10. This is a fascinating passage. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We eat and we drink because our bodies become weak. They need to be sustained. They need to be nourished. And Paul says you can glorify God in those simple, mundane things like eating and drinking. Romans 6 I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members, the parts of your body, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Because Jesus came as a true human Savior, it it shapes the way that we think about how we glorify God with our bodies now. Without a true humanity, our humanity ceases to matter to us because we begin to think it does not matter to God. With a true God-man, we see exactly what God wanted to redeem in Christ, He wanted to redeem people. He wanted to present them uh, faultless and blameless on the day of judgment. With a true God-man. Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. What makes us human is that with which God wants us to serve him. What makes us human is that with which God wants us to serve him. Our body and our soul. We see as we think about the humanity of Christ and how we need to uphold it, how it begins to shape the way that we hope our bodies matter to God for the future, for the resurrection, our bodies matter to God now. What we do with them, how we use them to glorify God. May that shape the way uh, that we think about these things and that we approach our Christian life, knowing and understanding that because Christ has cleansed us, because Christ presents us before his Father and then uh, purifies and sanctifies us, and we can serve him body and soul all of our days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you. We ask that you would bring forth these these wonderful truths to our minds and that we might take great comfort in them and seek to serve you because of what you have done for us in Christ. May we be faithful and may we trust in him always and may you lead us, lead us onward in this week as we seek to honor and serve you in Christ's name. Amen. And we sing number 440. We'll stand together. And we'll sing all four verses. My Jesus, I love thee.